0: Grace and Peace, you're listening to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a ministry devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians think better about race in a way that is biblical and helpful, clear and hopeful. You can learn more about our work at uwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com where you can find articles, old episodes and more. I'm Austin Suter, one of the co-hosts, joined today by very special guest, Bobby Scott. He is a Friend of the ministry, he is a pastor of Community of Faith Bible Church, uh, husband to Naomi, father of six children. Did I miss anything, Bobby? Well, thank you so much. We will link to it in the show notes. We're so glad you're here. You have written excellent articles for us, and uh, we are just so appreciative of your work, of your ministry and reach, and uh, wanted to wanted to have you on to get your perspective. Um, I am, uh, as you noted young and I look young. Um, and I I think there's a tendency among folks my age, Christians my age, who are conscious of matters of race to look and focus on how far we have yet to go and not to think so much about the progress we have made in uh, matters of race and justice. So what do you think? Do you think I'm onto something there? Do you think folks my age uh, have a have a lack of perspective on those issues?
1: Austin, I I don't think he could have said that better. I think you're totally right. I think every generation um, feels as if they have to prosecute the church, the, the whole question again, as if no one before them has argued these things. And so instead of standing on the shoulders of the progress of those who've gone before them, it almost sounds as if we're back Slavery days, and the language sounds like that. Oh, white supremacy, this and that, and this and the other. And we've come so far because of the brave men and women, uh, Christians of all kinds of backgrounds, who from the abolitionist days all the way through standing in civil rights marches uh, to this present hour uh, have made tremendous, tremendous progress. I think mean, I was in the I was at a conference once with a lot of young adults, um, for a lot of uh, urbanites and hip-hop uh, crowd, and they were just re- just railing through, uh, just uh, reeling, I should say, through, I think, another shooting, mm-hmm. and very distraught, very discouraged, and, um, and I wanted to encourage them by just trying to keep things in perspective. I mean, what happened to George Floyd isn't what happened to Emmett Till. The outcomes of Jewish food.
0: So the the people who killed those men yes. faced very different outcomes. Very
1: different, and that's that's just tremendous progress. And so, I, I don't think we do the conversation. We don't help the conversation move forward when we keep it locked in the past.
0: And you mentioned the faithfulness of Christians and of non Christians to to work on these matters. And I think we we need to credit the kindness of God too to give His common grace to to. Our society so you know in a way to ignore progress is to is to ignore the work of God in some sense right
1: yeah absolutely I, I think if you haven't read <clears throat> President Lincoln's second inaugural address uh, he cited just the Civil War as a judgment of God to purge us of slavery and thank God for the outcome of that war I can not imagine where we would be right now if the Union didn't win that war and that's a gracious act of God's promise, through suffering, through trials, and through a war.
0: So we're talking about slavery, about the Civil War. Um, what can you remember from your lifetime or for you know, perhaps hearing from your parents about the kinds of progress you've seen or, or that they remembered?
1: Yeah, my mom is our family historian. And so my mom, through her research, has taken my mind back all the way into slavery on both sides of my family, on my dad's and my mom's. And regrettably, a lot of black Americans can't do that. They don't know their past. But in my family, uh, on my mom's side, Marsh Villahunt actually fought in one of the final key battles in the Civil War and lost his life there at, at Chapin's Farm. It was the last battle for the Confederate to stand without losing Richmond. And they lost the battle through a great sacrifice of a lot of soldiers, particularly at Shapin's Farm, black soldiers. And the Union was able to march through and capture Richmond with a surrender. And so just knowing that my great, 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 I'm not sure how many greats to throw in there, great, 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 great grandfather, March Dillon, he walked out of slavery when the Union army came close to fight in the battle, and he died, Mm. along with a lot of others. Wow. And um, and, and, and I don't think about life and death matters when I'm thinking about racism. Right. But but everybody before me did. Um, So that's Marsh Dillahunt. And then I think of my grandmother who, in my last conversation with her, she stayed up till like two o'clock in the morning. I flew in to see her. I was living in California at the time, and I flew into Newark. And she said, well, Bobby, you can make it. And I went, well, of course, Grandma, I can make it. I'm, um, I, I, was, uh, I, I used to be a bodybuilder. And I won three state championships and a national title. I'm one private training business charging $50 an hour. I'm, I'm a student at UCLA. Of course I can make it. And they didn't dawn on me to what she meant. And she just meant you don't have to go through what I went through. That a lot of, and I would just, if I can be very careful and plain, though, I want to empathize with people who struggle, but I want to tell my young African-American brothers and sisters, you don't have the same ceiling that my grandmother had. When you talk about racism, she lived under systemic structural racism that was legalized every single day of her life, and you don't, and you need to thank God for that. And when the problems do come up, we've got to focus our lens and have a clear perspective on the differences that those whose shoulders we now stand on went through. And because they went through it, we don't. So what my grandmother said is because of her sacrifices and my dad's sacrifices, my mom, I mentioned, I think in other places, was the help. Right from the movie, her and her mom rode on the back of buses across town to clean white people's homes. My grandfather was a sharecropper, which meant they worked farms during the school year. So he had no opportunity, no chance of education at all. And so, he raised his son to say this, in America, black men work hard with their hands, not school, that's for for white people. He wanted to pull all of his sons out of high school and work in the janitorial business because that's what black men do. And so, it is a cultural phenomenon that comes out of codifying and racializing America the way we did to segregate black people and limit black people's opportunities. It was perspective that my grandfather learned that that if any American adopts now, I'm not going to be educated, I'm not going to maximize my talent and abilities through training myself for the school or trade school, you really limit your economic outcomes as well. But that's America that he learned. To try to get educated could mean, you know, lynchings, tongue cut off, or or who knows what. That's the world he lived in. And I have none of that. I've been called the N-word, I've been pulled over, I get fallen in stores. Everything you can think of is troublesome, but I can't, that doesn't compare, I, I I can't compare that at all to what my parents, grandparents, and great-great-grandparents went through.
0: And it doesn't mean there's not more to do, and it doesn't mean that we can't talk about those things, but let's just acknowledge how far we've come.
1: Yeah, so my my, my kids, I'll ask them questions, and so what happens in terms of when they talk about racism and, and they, they experience things that are real. But when they experience racism, <clears throat> some of it can be opportunities can be not denied. I, I think there are enough studies that show if we all sit and, if people all send in their resume and you get Jamal and Peter, you know, Jamal with the same credentials won't get called back as often. So there are opportunities and you know and you know the laws can't catch everything in terms of trying to make everything equal for our opportunities for different people of ethnicities. But because those things still happen, people express any and they know. And, and so with my kids, um, these conversations are, um, when they come up about race, sometimes it's just name calling This could be pretty offensive when they're in predominantly conservative white spaces. I think the frustration that's happening in homes over these conversations, sometimes the kids will hear and if they're looking at uh, some conservative, overly conservative perspective, and that's the overly conservative, one that lacks any attempt at being compassionate, um, like in a George Floyd situation, the kids will hear that in different homes and communicate that in their settings. And so my kids, a couple of my kids are in predominantly majority culture schools, and they will hear <coughs> jokes about, oh, the word vinegar, and you cover up the beginning of the word, and they'll hear that, or. They'll hear things like, I'll oh, carry my backpack, you're not being a good slave today. Wow. That's of shock.
0: That's awful.
1: But kids are, they, they don't have a filter. They will repeat the attitude that they've caught in other places that maybe would have been filtered by adults in their circles. So kids do experience it, but I'm like, I'm like honey, that's the kind of thing you can press through if your the administration of your school wants to deal with it. And so I keep my kids in some of those contexts because I know the administration uh, wants to do the
0: right thing. Well, maybe there's something here too about uh, some of this change coming about just through societal norms changing and that sort of thing, but some of it changed because it was the law. And the law changed before people's minds and hearts changed. And so the folks who were alive when the law changed who didn't want the law changed, well, they have kids now too. Yeah, and that And that's reflected in society. You I mean, look at
1: the long road that America has been on in terms of pursuing or just our racial reconciliation struggle. Then you look at the very founding of our country when our documents were amazing for everybody who was European. So our, our documents saying that you can pursue life, liberty and happiness and come to America, but not of you of color. And so those laws that got put in place in order to have a racialized hierarchy of white over black, think about the amount of laws you have to codify for that to happen that you have to have laws to limit travel, education, you can't own property, um, laws that will even prohibit you in in the sense of if you're raped, that you can't sue, you you can't go to court. We even had laws that we changed that um, would have come from Europe that would penalize a debt-be-debt. The European laws were really harsh about debt be debts. you'd even go to jail. But we changed those laws in order so that we could have, justified in a sense, masters having slaves, the children with slaves, and have no, no punishment for that at all. And they could keep their own children out of slaves because we changed the laws. Now parental lineage is gonna go through the mother and not the father. And so all these laws that get put in place for slavery and Jim Crow, and when they started changing, that was a huge, huge moment in American culture and history. But as you alluded to, laws don't change hearts. So we say we're we're going to desegregate. I don't know if a lot of your listeners would know this, but Ronald Reagan ran for office in California as a governor to fight against, this is the first version of the Equality Housing Act, that was saying that white people couldn't deny selling their homes to someone because they were black. And Ronald Reagan ran against that. He even tried to appeal it once he became governor. So the laws were changing, but hearts weren't changing, and because hearts didn't change, schools stayed pretty much racialized and segregated. Housing stayed pretty much racialized, and communities did, and outcomes were affected by that.
0: Yeah, and even when a bad law goes away, how long does it take for the for the outcomes to turn around? I mean, that's. It varies by law. It varies. You know. I'll give you a timeline. So I, I, my dad applies for a job in the
1: telephone company in the early 1960s. Pretty hard getting the job. Um, you can, Robert, even apply because you're black. He, sues, he can apply. Robert, um, you pass the test, but we know how black people are. You don't work hard. You're lazy. You drink. So you have to work in a metal for a year. So he does that for a year. Then they give him the job. Now I'm in the early 60s. He stays on that job and gets promoted from being an installer to a tester. Now I'm in the early 70s, he moves to Virginia, and in Virginia they were going to blackball him because they didn't have an installer, I mean a tester, in Virginia in the 70s. This is just a regular old blue-collar job that black people would have trouble getting to have a middle-class living. My dad gets the job in the 70s, ten, almost 10 years go by, and his boss came to him because he liked my dad. He said, Robert, you're the best worker I have, and you know they're not going to promote your management. To make the money you deserve, that you would get a management, why don't you switch over to sales? I'm in the 80s. So the laws that were supposed to remove opportunities for our people from segregating and, um, and denying people opportunities for color, um, you, how do you, how do you force, enforce that into the hearts of people who are private companies or and settings where, even as a, a, a culture in the a culture in the, the corporate environment, how do you force that change? And it takes time.
0: It does take time. Just to, to turn the question a little bit differently, what role does looking back have as we look forward?
1: I think that's so helpful. I, I think I think it 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 causes us, I think, to know that we have a collective problem and let's work together. Or a collective answer. Um, you know, I think if 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 we were if we were missionaries and we we go to a place and we just see through the history that they had awful water supplies or they had and it's killing their kids, we wouldn't say we would just do all that we could to try to remedy that situation, and we wouldn't call it, oh, now I'm just a social gospel person. I mean, they've had histories of all kinds of diseases because they don't, don't get fresh water. And so if I can help build a well, well, then, then of course we would do that. And so there are pockets in our American context of blighted black communities. I live in Los Angeles. And every year they do a study to show where people, people groups are educationally, economically, health, they look at every t- in indice in, in, in that you can think of and measure it. And black people typically are at the bottom of almost every major industry It's because there's there are a lot of people who were so ill affected, and I, now when I say this, the personal factors, their all kinds of factors are playing to this, not just the racialization of America. But America wanted a permanent servant class, and they wanted their permanent servant servant class to be of color. And so it may be that. A profound impact upon people of color has been the weight that they've had to carry with these unequal laws for so many years and how it formed, a, even formed a culture that is embracing some of it so that the outcomes are still affected by
0: it. Last question on this. I know you've, you've alluded to some of this already, but um, how are you hopeful, are you hopeful what what are you hopeful for as we think about this moving forward?
1: I am, I'm going to switch gears and I'm, I'm not talking about the secular society. And I hope that doesn't discourage anyone who's listening. I just think when I think of the Germany and the Holocaust, you have to look back in order to move forward. You, you have to fix things that were broken. And you can, um, so I think in our context, when I think of what I'm hopeful for, I'm, I'm, my trust is in Jesus Christ. I, I cheated. I read the end of the book. We will be unified and worshiped together as one uh, forevermore. And he is making that happen in our experience now. That the Jesus who died on the cross and tore down dividing walls, he's united us. We are family, we're brothers. And he's commanded us to pursue a one-mindedness and to pursue unity with diligence. And, and so, I mean, us sitting and having this conversation wouldn't have happened 100 years ago. Probably wouldn't happen 50 years ago, but here we are. And I think the more that Christians take the challenge of Acts 1:8, we're commanded to get out of our. I'm going I'm to apply I'm this because literally it's like get out of your little Jerusalem into your Judea, your Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world. then Christians are commanded to cross cultural barriers. We're commanded to cross relationship barriers to people we don't know, language and the like, and and to find the model, then all these people who need the gospel, we need to take the initiative. And I think for the church, I think things happen slowly because in 350 years, segregated America, racialized it. It's going to take more than a minute for those dividing, dividing walls to be torn down. But I think because Christ is unifying the church, I think it's happening. Uh, in society, um, uh, I, I just, I, I can't speak to that. I don't know. I, I think I think there may be always some type of Genesis chapter 11 tribalism going on when God, you know, scattered the people in Genesis 11, they got scattered into languages of people and I think tribalization will always be a reality among unbelievers.
0: Well, our hope is in Jesus. So let's go to him if you're fine with that and let's ask him for help. Thank him for what we've come through. I can start us and you can close us if that's okay. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for my brother, for the ministry you've given him, uh, for the mind you've given him, for his ability to speak on these things. Lord, we just thank you for, um, for how far we've come um, as a society and as your people. Um, thank you that we're not dealing with the same problems we were dealing with 150 years ago or 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, and so, Lord, as we continue to work, as we continue to, uh, to press on, Lord, we pray that you would give us perspective, pray that you would give us hope, um, pray that you would give us a confidence in you that, um, that Jesus is coming back, uh, and that uh, he will make all things right. We pray this in his name. Amen. And I pray, Father, that you would grant us grace
1: so that we don't become weary in doing good. And I pray that you would give us humility to speak the truth and speak the truth and love, and that we would care for one another enough not to ignore problems. Um, I just pray you help us to pursue one another with the knowledge of what Christ has done so that we can walk in unity. So grant us that grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Friends, thank you so much for listening. You can find more about our work at uwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com. Grace and peace.